If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Hadrian's Wall is the most famous survival from Roman Britain, and in celebration of its 1900th anniversary in 2022, History Extra content director Dave Musgrove puts your questions on the wall to Dr Rob Collins. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. Today I am joined by Dr Rob Collins, who's a lecturer in archaeology at Newcastle University and author of Living on the Edge of Empire, The Objects and People of Hadrian's Wall, that was published in 2020, and a little earlier from 2012, Hadrian's Wall and the End of Empire, the Roman frontier in the 4th and 5th centuries. So as you can tell, he's an expert on Hadrian's Wall. That's the subject of today's Everything You Want to Know episode. As ever, it's your questions that we're answering, submitted via social media and interspersed with some of the leading online search questions on the topic. So, Rob, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? 
Very good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you're joining us from uh, from the northeast of England, I imagine, presumably not in sight of Hadrian's Wall, though. Not quite in sight of Hadrian's Wall, but not that distant. I'm only about two miles south of it at the moment. Okay, brilliant. Um, so uh, let's let's get into it. The, the, the first bit that we need to tackle is the basics. The, the most prominent Google search query is what is it and where is it? Okay, well, Hadrian's Wall, it is best to think of not simply as a wall, but actually as a whole monumental complex, which has a whole bunch of different parts to it. Um, it can be found running across the narrow isthmus uh, of the north of England, so from the North Sea coast, uh, west all the way across uh, past Carlisle to the Irish Sea coast. Uh, and the, the kind of two end sites in the east is Wall's End, which is a, now a, a neighborhood, uh, formerly a historic village, but now a neighborhood of the greater Newcastle area, uh, all the way in the west to Bonas and Solway, uh, which is another rural village that, that looks across the Irish Sea. In, in terms of what is it, the, the name is a giveaway. Hadrian's Wall is a wall, but it's not just a wall, because in addition to the wall, there are a number of, of different uh, what we call installations that can be found along its length. So there are, um, there are approximately 140 towers, uh, what we would call uh, turrets. There are approximately 72-mile castles. Uh, that's a, a small fortified gateway that can be found roughly every mile. And then in between those, there's also larger, larger settlements, Roman forts, the main bases where the soldiers that garrisoned the wall would, would live and, and work. In addition, because it's not enough to have you know, a, a wall curtain, towers, fortified gates and forts, there is a ditch that's immediately to the north of Hadrian's Wall. And then south of Hadrian's Wall, south of the curtain, there's another element called the Vallum, which is a, a, another deep ditch flanked by two large mounds that also runs uh, most of the length of Hadrian's Wall. So it's kind of this, this layered monumental complex of, of linear obstacles and barriers. And, and roughly speaking, how long is it? What's, what's the distance between Bowness and uh, Wall's End? Yeah, so it runs for um, a little bit more than 72 modern statute miles. Um, so it's it's not inconsiderable. You know, it's 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 a major monumental undertaking that the Romans uh, did to, to construct this. And uh, my children are well aware of the distance of it because uh, a couple of months ago I made them cycle along the uh, along the edge of it. So uh, <laughs> so uh, yes, they they were quite clear about it. <laughs> yeah, you're you're a cruel parent. <laughs> uh, now look, let's let's jump into some more of these questions. So uh, Constance uh, De Senzo Coleman on Facebook asks, what were the years of construction uh, and the materials used? and how long was it intact? So if you can sort of try and tackle those three bits in, in one go, that would be that would be good. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Hadrian's Wall was built under the Emperor Hadrian. And actually, we think it may have been a little bit of a, a personal, not vanity project, but it, you know, its conception was the Emperor Hadrian's himself. We don't have any evidence for that, but it's, it's such a monumental scale project that it almost certainly would have required imperial approval to build, but uh, we think also imperial inspiration. Um, traditionally, the date of AD 122 is, is what's given for the year that construction begins. And that's why uh, in 2022, we're celebrating kind of 1900 years of Hadrian's Wall. Um, but actually, uh, scholarship in more recent years has really favored the notion that um, it probably had already, they'd already started construction of the wall before 122, maybe around 120. So we can't be sure the exact year. But what we do think is that Hadrian is inspecting the wall when he does his imperial visit to Britain in AD 122. 
And so that gives Hadrian a chance to, to inspect, you know, do an official inspection of the building works. In terms of how long it took to, to build, um, this is one of those things that, that while scholars will, will heatedly debate about, um, you know, if you put all 20 of us in a room and we'll, we'll get very uh, red faces, but, you know, we can do the math, we can show that it was feasible for the whole wall complex to be built within five years, um, provided the, the Roman emperor, provided Hadrian threw enough resource at it, uh, particularly in terms of manpower. Um, it probably wasn't built in five years. There, there are some pieces of evidence that suggest there may have been um, pauses in the building process. Um, but, you know, built within 10 years is quite reasonable. And uh, it also had a very long life. So while the initial monument itself was, was probably built within 10 years, it, it was changed. There were additions or modifications made throughout its life. And it was occupied and garrisoned, you know, by the Roman army until at least AD 400, um, and quite possibly beyond that. So you're looking at a, a, a militarized border monument, which is, which has a, a military garrison for you know approximately 270 years. That's incredible. You know, if you think back to you know 300 years ago from present day, you know we're in 2021 now. You know, 300 years earlier would be. Um, would be 1721. You know, think about, you know, being a soldier now on a border, knowing that George had had built this border, established this border, and, and had put soldiers there 300 years previously. You know, that's a, it's a very long-lived monument. And and that's just the Romans. You know, there's there's another 1500 years of history that goes along with it. And just thinking that, I mean, that's that's fascinating, isn't that, that that long durée of the wall? And we'll come back to that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Hadrian's visit in one two two at the end of our of our chat. I'm just thinking about the materials involved. Was it was it a wall all the way along? And if so, where did the stone come from? Hamish Ross has asked that specific question. Where did all the stone come from? So the the wall is built. Um, you can say it's it's centuries ahead of its time. It's you know it's it's got a very good carbon footprint in the sense that it's it's built of of local materials. Um, the majority of Hadrian's Wall was originally built in stone. The the western um, third of it was built in turf and timber originally, um, but that was eventually replaced with stone construction. So. It is stone. It is local stone. Um, in some cases, as local as maybe a hundred meters away. Um, that the, they're they're quarrying this rock and, and shaping it to to build the wall. In other cases, the the stone is having to be moved from from a bit further away. You know, ten, fifteen, twenty miles, uh, especially in the west, um, where there's not as many um, you know good geological outcroppings uh, to quarry from. And it's. You know, we we think of Roman building as excellent, you know, as, as they were excellent engineers and, and, and excellent builders. Um, the fact that Hadrian's Wall still exists today, it's still upstanding um, to kind of waist or chest height in many locations, is a testament to to the durability of Roman construction. But actually, when you look closely, the, the construction is not brilliant. There's, there's a lot of um, shortcuts that, that, that the soldiers, the Roman legionary soldiers took when they were building it. Um, you know, there are some places where a good builder, when he's building something large and heavy, an extension to your house or a new home, you know they they level out the ground, they lay a, a very nice level foundation, um, and then they build on top of that so your your coursework doesn't slip or slide. Um, that doesn't happen everywhere along Hadrian's Wall. You can see a lot of places where the stones are built, you know, basically running up or down a slope at an angle. So 
when you look closely, the workmanship is would not necessarily pass modern building inspection, I think is it's fair to say. Um, and what we can see actually because of that, that there are locations where there's there's evidence for repair, you know, where they had to completely rebuild that, you know, that monumental wall. Um, some recent excavations just outside the fort at Wall's End um, have, have shown that. And you can go in and see those ruins today and you can see, you know, there's stones of all sizes. You know, it's a real hodgepodge because they had to rebuild the wall there at least four times due to all sorts of local ground conditions that, that meant it kept collapsing. Um, so to say we have this impression of the Romans as, you know, this this powerful empire and they were great engineers and, and, and built impressive structures. Um, you know, when it comes to the wall, it is impressive. It is monumental. But, you know, not everything is up to code uh, by our standards. Um, it's very interesting to think about the carbon footprint of the wall. Has, any, has anyone has anyone done the done the work on that? Done the math on establishing what, what that footprint was? No one's really done the math on it. I think what is is really interesting is you know we're we're very used to in, in modern society thinking about government building projects and you know and what does it cost the taxpayer? Um, the Roman Empire they they definitely you know collected their taxes. Um, that was very important to the emperor. But um, they didn't necessarily kind of think in economic terms the same way that we did. So they wouldn't necessarily have costed out materials and the sourcing of materials and even the, the labor hours in the same way that we would. Um, you know, the Roman legions were standing and, and were being paid regardless. So, you know, this is just different tasks for daily salary that would have been spent anyways. Um, the, the stone, the building materials... We don't know if the if the Romans had to pay for any of them because the Roman emperor and the Roman army certainly had the power to just take the land and 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 take what they wanted. That's not to say they did. They they may have paid you know local landowners money for those materials, or or given them some tax breaks. Um, we don't know, but um, we wouldn't have the Romans wouldn't have costed it out in the same way that we would today. Um, they they simply could just do it. They could just build it. Um, it's very hard to resist, you know, five and a half thousand men, you know, Roman legion saying we've come for your stone. Um, you know, they, they could exercise that power. Um, in terms of the, the other aspects of carbon footprint, you know, they're, you know, the main thing is they're, they're quarrying away at the natural bedrock, you know, the natural stone. Um, so that's not entirely renewable. Um, they would be burning some fossil fuels, you know, certainly if they're, um, you know, when they're mixing mortar, you have to, to bake limestone to get the quick lime and, and use that to mix mortar. Um, there would have been lots of oxen and donkeys pulling sleds and carts and uh, leaving droppings and, and such. So there, there definitely is a carbon footprint to it. But uh, yeah, as of yet, no one's, no one's worked out exactly what it is. I guess uh, from, from that uh, answer you've just given, you're not going to be able to give a, a clear answer to AgroBioDiverse's uh, Twitter question, uh, how much did it cost to build? I, I guess we, we simply have no way of assessing that. No, I'm, I'm afraid we can't really assess it. I mean, we, we can work out the, you know, the estimated labor hours. You know, we can, we can work out the, the quantities of material. Um, and in fact, um, uh, a scholar of Hadrian's Wall who, who recently passed away, uh, Peter Hill, uh, prior to doing his kind of PhD uh, on Hadrian's Wall, he was a master mason and worked at, at Lincoln Cathedral in York Minster. Uh, previously. And so he brought those skills as a professional mason to understanding Hadrian's Wall. And so, you know, he 
he brought some really important observations, like the fact that it really isn't very well built. Uh, you know, um, when you look at individual building stones, um, Peter was of the opinion that um, maybe a half hour to an hour's training um, would be given to the soldier uh, of this is how you roughly shape out a stone and make it a, a, a rectangular block. Um, and then it's just practice, practice, practice. Um, but, you know, the stonework is is pretty rough. It's It's not... It's you know it's it's not finely joined blocks. It's not highly polished marble. It's it's roughly quarried in, in finished sandstone um, that can be stacked you know in, in courses in, in a rough coursework. Um, so you know even then the, the labor expenditure isn't as great as it could have been. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that when we talk about what what the wall was for, because that you know the the roughness of it perhaps perhaps helps us understand that. But before we do, um, just a couple more on what it is. Coach Carly uh, on Twitter asked um, how much of the wall is missing, uh, and and further uh, wondering how much of it is in local people's houses now. Has it been has it been reused in in properties near the wall? The wall has a, a fantastic post Roman history, and what you see are, are actually kind of different phases in which the wall is used as a quarry. Um, so, in the uh, Middle Ages, um, even in the early Middle Ages, so for example, Hexham Abbey, the crypt at Hexham Abbey is built entirely from reused Roman stones um, from the nearby Roman town of Corbridge and probably also the, the Roman fort at Chester's. Um, and they particularly chose some decorated stones at, at key locations. Um, we can see other churches and castles in the, the Middle Ages that are, you know, are being built from Roman stones from Hadrian's Wall. Thirwall Castle is a really great example here. Um, it's it's a, a fascinating kind of 14th century stone-built castle. It's maybe 150 meters north of the line of Hadrian's Wall. Um, and why not? You've got this really convenient, already shaped pile of stone that's right there um, that, you know, the castle is almost entirely built from, it looks like. Um, subsequently, that castle was then quarried, the stones from the castle were quarried to build the farm and the, the cottages and farmhouses and barns uh, and even some of the, the field walls, uh, you know, the stone fencing, which is is right there. So there's this really interesting life cycle to to the stone, you know, that the Romans quarry the stone from the earth, it goes into the wall, and then, you know, the, the local people afterwards are are using that stone to build churches, castles, farmhouses, simple cattle enclosures, you know, any number of things. So then when it comes to kind of working out how much of the wall is missing, um, it's actually quite difficult because there's no one location where Hadrian's Wall stands to its full height. So we're we rely upon historic descriptions from um, Bede, for example, who in the 8th century wrote that the wall was 12 feet tall in his day. Um, you know, we estimate the wall was perhaps 15 feet tall. Um, so when you think of what's missing, there's there's no area where the wall is, is anywhere near that tall. Um, and then you think there's all the forts, the mile castles, the turrets. I suspect we're probably missing at least 90% of Hadrian's Wall. Um, so we, we really have, and, and maybe even more than that, so we, we really have a, a very small percentage of it that survived archaeologically. And, um, and the challenge for us as archaeologists is to try and understand that Roman life in the frontier from that very small percentage of, of what remains. 
And just sort of going back to that carbon footprint uh, conversation, if it's being reused and reused, then that's you know that's uh, that work, that plays into those calculations quite nicely, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a very eco-friendly region, <laughs> I have to say. So, um, so you've said that basically we're we're missing a lot of it, the, the vast majority of it we're missing. But there are clear, there are still some sections there. Zoe Hoffalt on Twitter wants to know what sections are still there. So, where are the bits where you can kind of best see it? Yeah, there's 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 tons of visitor options. To be honest, there are um, eleven main Roman visitor attractions. Uh, that's you know kind of sites and museums that can be visited to see those. Um, on the ground, you know, to say that there's probably over ninety percent missing, you know, there are multiple tens of miles of of visible remains to be visited. The the most famous area um, in in probably where it's most visible is, is what we call the central sector. So um, the middle bit of Hadrian's Wall, which generally falls between the towns of Hexham and Brampton. And, um, you know, you can walk along the wall there. You can see upstanding remains of, of the Stone Curtain, which in many places will be, um, you know, one and a half, one and a half meters in height. Um, so it's not to say there isn't anything to see, um, it's just that you can see over what's left of the wall uh, in almost every location. Um, you know, there are a number of forts to visit. Um, you know, one of those uh, famous sites to visit is, is Housesteads, which sits very dramatically um, right on, on the top of a, of a cliff, what we call crags up here. Um, and you've got, you know, gorgeous views uh, from this, this cliff top um, that you can look to the north, uh, you can look to the south. Um, and it's it's very dramatic, and it has a very kind of romantic appeal as a landscape. Uh, there's a sense of kind of you know ruggedness to it. Uh, there's a lot. There's a regular wind, um, you know. So it just it kind of it's very sensory. It gives you an impression of what it would have been like for a Roman soldier. That said, it's not all windswept, you know, romantic, uh, you know, um, slightly gothic crags and in 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 bad weather. You know, there's other lovely sites at uh, Chester's Roman Fort, for example, which is an English heritage site, as same as Housesteads. Um, that's situated in, in the North Tyne Valley. It's right beside the, the North Tyne River. Um, and there's this lovely microclimate. It's, you know, it's it's a very, very pleasant, very sunny area. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's on a main routeway. You know, that, that river valley provides a main routeway for, for traffic historically. Um, if you go to the east in, in Newcastle, you've got... Um, Tyne and Weir Museums manage two sites there. There's the Roman Fort at Wall's End and the Roman Fort at, at South Shields, um, where they have some lovely reconstructions. But really, they're in the heart of urban areas, what are modern urban areas. Um, and if you walk the length of Hadrian's Wall in those urban areas, you can find little bits where the wall kind of sticks up, you know, just to the side of the sidewalk or, um, you know, underneath Newcastle Castle you know, the castle that made Newcastle, Newcastle, as it were, you know, in the city center, that castle is built directly on top of the fort of Hadrian's Wall. If you go to the west, there's Carlisle Castle, which is built on the Roman fort that was at Carlisle. Um, and even further west, um, you've got uh, Drumbra Castle, which is a still a private site, but that's built out of the stones that, that, that built the fort at Drumbra. Um, and that's on, you know, these lovely salt marsh flats. So, you know, you get this really lovely diversity of landscape, and then you know, perhaps the the crown jewel you could say in attractions is the site of Vindolanda, um, where um, you know because of the incredible organic preservation and the the excavations that have been ongoing since the nineteen seventies, 
know, they've got these things, the, the Vindolanda writing tablets. Um, they've got wonderful layers of archaeology that preserve organic, you know, generally biodegradable remains, which have survived. They have a collection of over 5,000 shoes, you know, some of them, you know, designer shoes for their day, um, you know, baskets, uh, various wooden remains. So there's, there's this excellent offering, you know, across the entirety of Hadrian's Wall, where you can see really diverse landscapes, uh, fascinating Roman remains. Um, lots of the mile castles and turrets that are along its length can just simply be visited and seen. Um, and, you know, if you're out at night as well, the other great attraction is, is the dark skies. There's very little light pollution. Um, and so you get these beautiful starscapes that you can see. And if you're really lucky, every now and then the northern lights will, will flare up too. I mean, uh, everyone who listens to this podcast should go and visit Hadrian's Wall if it's at all possible. It is an amazing place to visit for all those reasons. And Vindolanda has has that reconstruction bit as well, doesn't it? Where they've kind of where it they've, does, they've, yes. they've created a bit, so you can get a sense of of what it like might might have looked like. I'm just wondering. So that in that central bit where the, you know where it's it's very evocative and going along the crags, and you've got the famous sycamore gap with the with the famous tree that sits in the middle of it, extremely photogenic. How how much of what you're seeing there in in terms of the upstanding wall is actually original Roman stuff, and how much has been um, uh, been 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 redone by by later conservators? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So a lot of people won't realize that much of Hadrian's Wall, as we see it in the central sector, isn't quite the original Roman build. It's um, what we refer to uh, in the business as Clayton Wall, and um, that is because. Uh, a really fascinating historical figure in the 19th century, John Clayton. He was the town clerk of Newcastle, uh, which was a position of immense uh, power, which also could generate immense wealth. Um, but he also was a lawyer by practice. Um, you know, he was just an immensely wealthy and powerful man. Uh, and, you know, from a, a powerful family as well. But he was a very keen antiquarian. And so he used his wealth to purchase farms and estates along the length of Hadrian's Wall. And so he built up a, a very impressive wall portfolio, if you will. Um, and he was very keen that those Roman antiquities, those the remains of the Roman monument, any objects or inscriptions that were found were not lost. So he, he attempted to collect any of the objects and inscriptions um, and preserve the, the Roman building remains. And much of his estate is now part of the National Trust Estate in the central sector, uh, though still diminished. So, for example, uh, Vindolanda was part of his estate as well um, that was parceled off and sold off. And in fact, his his very uh, lovely country house, which is still a private residence, is immediately beside the, the Roman fort at Chester's. And so, actually, he grew up um, with the ruins of the Roman fort of Chester's in the house grounds. Um, and as soon as he kind of came of age and, and had some authority over the estate, you know, he he started putting work parties at, at Chester's, excavating the fort there, um, helping to establish his collection. At Housesteads, which was one of the sites he, he purchased and bought, there were some farmhouses that were um, in the fort itself. Um, he didn't like this. Um, he, he felt that those, those farmhouses got in the way of, of viewing the Roman remains. And so he had new farmhouses built for the farmers outside of the fort uh, so that he could dismantle uh, the ones that were in the fort. Um, and he had his workmen, you know, clear vast stretches of, of the wall, the curtain, uh, so it could be revealed and looked at. And where where that stone facing had fallen, 
he had them repair it. So uh, a lot of that central sector is, is really the reason it's been preserved, the reason we can see it, is very much down to John Clayton. Um, and just, you know, one man's passion. And in his case, thankfully, he had the means uh, to, to afford that passion. But it's, it's, it's really established a, a heritage treasure for all of us. And because of that work, you know, we, I'm certain we can say Hadrian's Wall is, is a world heritage site. You know, it, it wouldn't be what it is without John Clayton's interest. Okay, well, we should we should be thankful to him for that then, I guess. Uh, right, here's, here's a, a possibly a slightly tongue-in-cheek question from Nigel Armitage on Facebook, but it does offer a chance to think about something else. It, Nigel's question is, did they celebrate the finish with a, a set of commemorative stamps issued by the post office, which, which obviously they didn't, but but I suppose underlying it is, you know, was, was there ever any sort of any commemorative finishing ceremony? Was it ever actually officially completed in any way? It definitely was completed, and there are very tentative pieces of evidence that suggest uh, a, a couple things around that. So uh, one is an inscription that we don't have surviving in full. And in fact, uh, it was a, a huge kind of monumental inscription, you know, as big as, as some bedroom walls um, that was broken into at least two slabs um, that have been found in different circumstances. One of those being reused at, at Jarrow Church, the early medieval kind of monastery built at Jarrow um, across the river from Wallsend. Um, and that seems to be a, a dedicatory inscription um, around the building of the wall uh, that attributes it to Hadrian. And, you know, when complete, that inscription be a very substantial, very large slab of stone that was probably at least three or four meters long and maybe two meters tall, you know, with, with letters that were about, you know, uh, eight inches to, um, you know, let's say 25 centimeters in height. Um, so it's a very large, you know, it's it's a big billboard sort of inscription that you could see from some distance. And that probably um, either graced one portion of Hadrian's Wall or possibly a monument that was also built as part of the kind of commemoration of, you know, this great wall was built for Hadrian. But we don't have any other remains of that monument. Uh, or, or and we've only got these two fragments of a much bigger inscription. But that's enough to tell us there was something there that was kind of making a bigger deal of the wall. Um, and it's very important to remember that um, Roman emperors were not shy, self-effacing, humble sort of uh, leaders. You you had to have a very healthy ego um, and um, maybe even a willingness to wield power in a very absolute fashion. Um, and Hadrian did. So, you know, it's Roman emperors like to take credit and receive credit uh, for the for their projects. Um, at a more everyday level, another really tantalizing um, piece of evidence that we have is a number of um, what we would call bowls um, or or small pans um, that have a decoration on them of a kind of a, a little crenellated wall, as it were. So if you kind of imagine a castle parapet running around the outside of a bowl, um, there's often enamel um, poured into it as well. So there's kind of this really vibrant color and these bowls would have been in bronze. So you, know, you have to imagine this, this really lustrous kind of gold looking bowl of, of, of bronze with really bright colored enamels of, of reds and blues and yellows filling in these cells to add some decoration. And then above that decoration, there's often a series of names in Latin of the Roman forts at the Western end of Hadrian's Wall. And there's 
you know, maybe a half dozen of these kind of these bulls that uh, have been found in various locations. Uh, most recently, um, in 2007, one was recorded with the Portable Antiquity Scheme found in Staffordshire. Um, and these look to be really souvenir bowls, souvenir pans. Um, it's the best kind of explanation of them. Uh, there's no two that are exactly alike. So that means that there are different people making them, different producers. Um, and they seem to date to the second century AD. So, you know, the time that Hadrian's Wall is, is built and first occupied. And yeah, and so it, it just seems to be this kind of maybe, it might be too far to say a tourist trinket, but it definitely has that sort of tourist feel to it. it. It doesn't look like the sort of thing that, you know, every soldier on Hadrian's Wall is getting a commemorative bowl. If that were the case, we would have that many more of them. Um, so we only have this kind of handful remaining, but it does point to some sort of industry uh, where, you know, the wall is known, people want their token uh, as it were, from the wall. And it always seems to stay famous, um, even if in really bizarre mythical terms. So there is a a sixth century writer um, of kind of early Byzantine um, persuasion, Procopius. And he writes about Hadrian's Wall, almost as if it's a magical boundary. And so um, he kind of explains Hadrian's Wall as nothing can survive to its north. You know, only, only you know, kind of creatures and poisonous snakes and such. Um, the climate is is terrible, and it's you know it it separates the land of the living from the land of the dead. Um, and in that sense, Procopius's description of Hadrian's Wall is is actually a lot more like uh, the wall in the Game of Thrones, in the sense that it's it's not just this monumental barrier, but it's also some sort of supernatural demarcation. Um, so it is a famous monument. It is being celebrated even in its own day, you know, even by the Romans. That is fascinating. Presumably Procopius then wasn't aware of the Antonine Wall. Uh, no, he doesn't seem to be aware of the Antonine Wall. And, you know, I, he clearly didn't have to deal with the people of what is now Scotland. Um, or, or he's completely dismissing the evidence because actually he, he should have known that plenty of Roman emperors had to deal with people living to the north of Hadrian's Wall, that that was one of the reasons there was a wall, in fact. Um, so it wasn't, you know, you know, you know, very interesting, vibrant culture of, of Caledonians and later the Picts, you know, uh, living to the north of the wall and, and not, you know, vast hordes of undead white walkers, uh, as, as George R. R. Martin would have it. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting, though, that that historical knowledge would have been available to Procopius, and yet he chose to emphasize this kind of magical uh, perspective, this magical view. Um, I've realised I've just dropped in Antonine Wall and our listeners might not know what that is. Could you just very, very, very quickly um, uh, tell us about that? Of course, yeah. So the the Antonine Wall is another wall, another monumental frontier wall um, and that is built by the emperor following Hadrian, Antoninus Pius. Um, and that is built roughly between the cities or connecting the cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, though, of course, it predates those two cities. Um, so, again, it's, it's built across a narrow isthmus of land, you know, going from the, the North Sea coast uh, on the east of Britain to the, the Irish Sea coast on the west. And um, it was only occupied really very briefly for a period of 20 years. And so that 20-year period when the Antonine Wall was constructed and occupied, um, Hadrian's Wall was not occupied. Um, but immediately, even before Antoninus Pius has died, they have decided that they're not going to maintain that wall, and the Romans withdraw further south again to Hadrian's Wall. 
So there's this interesting flirtation here uh, with a, another northern wall uh, and pushing further north into Scotland, but it's, it's not sustained. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Trajan, the emperor before Hadrian, he was very fond of conquest, I think is the only way to say it. You know, in modern parlance, he liked to kick ass and take names. He would conquer a new territory and he would add that territory's name to his imperial titles. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Okay, let's let's try and tackle kind of one of the big questions is what was it for? So we got a few questions. Neil, e, Neil Eads on Facebook asks, what was its main purpose? Was it a defensive or a customer's barrier, he asks. And then Saskia on Twitter asks sort of similar, who was supposed to be stopped by the wall and did it actually work? So do you want to try and uh, conflate those two together? One of the best ways to think about it is, is from historical perspective. Um, and this is something that David Brees, uh, another uh, very prominent wall archaeologist, has has captured quite nicely and, and, and eloquently. Essentially, our views of what Hadrian's Wall is used for, its intended purpose, is often very much due to the kind of the politics of our own day. So, as I say, if we look at this historically, throughout most of history, it was evident self-evident to the people uh, living near the wall or who knew about it, what Hadrian's Wall was for. It was a defensive barrier. Um, They didn't really question that. Um, And even actually, in fact, in the Elizabethan period, there was a a plan, probably from one of the the kind of the border lords, march lords, 
that even you know seems to have been inspired by Hadrian's Wall to build a new border wall between you know England and Scotland to to reduce border reaving. So it's it's clearly seen as a defensive barrier historically. What happens though is that um, the Mile castles are discovered, and and when I say discovered, what I mean is uh, the Mile castles are these kind of what we would call a fortlet. They're not particularly large. Think of, you know, kind of a, about 40 meters square, though they, they're rectangular and they can vary from that. They're not substantially large, but they are a small kind of fortification with a gateway that allows you access through the wall barrier. A few of these were known, but once it was realized that they could be found regularly every mile, which is why they're called mile castles, um, that made people start to wonder, well, wait, that's that's not particularly defensive. If you can if there's a gate every mile, that's that's really kind of permeable. Um and so that started introducing the question of, well, all right, maybe Hadrian's Wall isn't entirely about defense. Maybe it is meant to be much more permeable. Maybe it is meant to actually give um extra gateways and, and act as a giant customs booth. And um, you'll find periods where that favor that interpretation is favored, um, you know, particularly kind of at the later 19th century, early 20th century. We've kind of got the the, the perceived height of the British Empire, um, where security is not an imperial concern so much as revenue. Um, that interpretation also gains more favor again. Um, after the war, after World War II, um, as the EU is being formed and you're starting to get open borders. And so borders you know, are not being perceived as something that have to be defended, but actually you know, become economic opportunities. That interpretation, though, has shifted back again over the past 20 years towards a more defensive interpretation. And, and that's for a couple reasons. One is um, a new form of evidence, uh, which has been discovered and identified in the past 30 years. And these are the berm obstacles. So excavations that have occurred at the east end of Hadrian's Wall in the greater Newcastle area have found evidence of pits built on the narrow strip of land between the wall curtain and the ditch to its north. And within those kind of pits, there's then evidence for uh, what we call post holes. So it's kind of the archaeological remains effectively of, of wooden stakes. And um, we know from the writings of Julius Caesar that there are these things called kippi, um, which are effectively, they're, they're branches cut from trees. They take all the leaves off um, and then they sharpen the ends of those branches and put them in holes in the ground and make sure they're interlocked, effectively creating barbed wire. And so what we can see is that actually when Hadrian's Wall was built, certainly at the east end of Hadrian's Wall, not only is there the ditch and then the wall, but between the ditch and the wall, there's this thick line of barbed wire, you know, Roman equivalent of barbed wire. You know, that's another, that's clearly defensive. That's, you know, there's no way around that. That's that's a, another obstacle, another barrier. So that's one form of evidence. The other form of evidence is kind of this reassessment of, of ancient sources that indicate when Hadrian came to power, there seems to have been a war in Britain. And the warfare in Britain was being compared to the warfare in Palestine and Judea, um, which was of a very substantial scale and, and lots of loss of life. So actually, there seems to be a very high level of violence of warfare happening in Northern Britain. And so that may have been the impetus for building Hadrian's Wall. The other possibility is that in building the wall, it triggered even more warfare. Um, so the ancient sources don't tell us enough information for us to be certain, but there certainly is active warfare going on. And it makes sense if that's going on 
while Hadrian's Wall is being built. And so with these kind of berm obstacles being a new discovery and kind of this reassessment of warfare occurring, it's pushed interpretation back toward a more defensive uh, favor. And so we do think that Hadrian's Wall is is probably intended to be a much more defensible monument uh, and defendable barrier. But that said, you know, um, border control is not mutually exclusive with defense. And, you know, over the 300 years of its life, you know, the the wall wouldn't have been a con- in a constant state of war. And it evolved. There are changes. Um, there's evidence that suggests that it, you know, it did get perhaps a bit more peaceful because some of the turrets, some of the towers, which were excellent observation platforms, watchtowers, they're demolished. You know, they're getting rid of watchtowers. So that suggests, you know, that they don't necessarily need them, at least not along the whole length of the wall. So it's, it's kind of important to remember 300 years of life for this monument. And while it may have started out as something a bit more defensive, that actually over the course of its entire life, that's not necessarily its function. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And it takes us back to what you were saying earlier about just trying to imagine the length of service of this thing. One of the things that maybe we should have done earlier on in this conversation is is, uh, contextualise what was going on in in Roman Britain at this period. So, um, so the Claudian uh, invasion was uh, in the AD 40s, wasn't it? So we're only, we're less than a century on from the, from the actual start of the Roman period. How secure was was the Roman occupation of Britain, um, and and who 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 was on the other side of the wall? Who were the Romans trying to defend themselves from? So the the Roman invasion of Britain is you know AD forty three. It's under Claudius. By the AD seventies, within thirty years, the Roman army is campaigning in in the north of England, and in fact, even as far north as the Highlands of Scotland. You know, so in in the eighties AD. Um, you know, we have uh, this fantastic source, uh, Tacitus, who's writing about his his father-in-law, Agricola, you know, uh, who is the governor of Britain. You know, he is he is campaigning in Scotland, you know. Um, so, you know, within 30 years, the Romans have moved out of the south, out of the Midlands, um, and have shifted their attention to northern England and Scotland. And so, you know, that's a lot of territory. That's a lot of land to kind of put under conquest and try and bring into empire. Um so the Romans were familiar with the landscape of Hadrian's Wall with Northern England by the 80s, 70s, 80s, 80s. Um, there are some key kind of locations and forts that are built in the 70s at, at Corbridge, for example, at Carlisle, um, Vindolanda not long after. Um, and it's only really after they withdraw south from Scotland um, in, the, in the 90s um, that they start consolidating that military force in the area where Hadrian's Wall is eventually built. Um, and that's partly, that withdrawal is partly because Roman attention shifted to the Danube. And uh, Trajan, the emperor before Hadrian, um, uh, liked to, um, well, he was very fond of conquest, I think is the only way to say it. You know, in modern parlance, he liked to kick ass and take names. He would conquer a new territory and he would add that territory's name to his imperial titles. Um, and, and you can see that on his coinage. You know, he's, every time he conquers a new territory, there's another name added to, uh, to his coins. Um, so Trajan was very expansive. He took in a lot of land and, and fought quite a bit. So when Hadrian came to power, there had been all these wars. The Roman army had been very well exercised in, in multiple theaters, um, you know, across the Roman Empire, you know, in, in the Near East against Parthia, you know, across the Danube in Dacia, what's now Romania, you know, um, not so much in Britain, but Britain seems to be this active hotspot 
probably because Trajan was much more busy looking at other places and was not paying attention. So um, so Hadrian's policy, when he comes to power, is actually very much to consolidate the Roman Empire's territorial holdings. And so, you know, building Hadrian's Wall is part of that. He is consolidating that power. Um, You know, he's not, he's drawing a line in the sand to some extent. And he doesn't only do that in Britain, he also does that in other, in other parts, other provinces. So the German Limes, for example, there's a very substantial, uh, you know, timber barricade, you know, which is built for hundreds of kilometers in, a, in an almost nearly straight line, you know, a, across Germany, um, you know, running in a north-south fashion. So, you know, Hadrian's very much trying to consolidate Roman imperial holdings um, so that they're not lost effectively. Um, so it's not to say he wasn't militant. Hadrian came to power, was a, was a good emperor because he was a good soldier. Um, and in fact, he was responsible for what we would now call um, some ethnic cleansing in the Near East. Um, so it's not that he was afraid of warfare, but he also understood the, the problems with overstretching. And so much of his reign, that's what he set about to do. He consolidated those borders and, and made them much firmer. And, and so, you know, Hadrian's Wall is a, a very monumental response to that. Um, you mentioned the word limes there. That's you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. That's the Latin term for the, like, the defensive um, structures that were constructed across the Roman Empire. It's lin- linear boundaries, essentially. Yeah, my apologies. I forget that not everyone has, has studied Latin. Yeah, so so limes is the Latin, which which has a few different meanings, but it, it broadly means frontier, um, and, and what we would recognize as frontier. And th- that's the singular, if, if you want to get technical. Limes is singular. In the plural, it's limites. Um, but we often talk about, yeah, the Roman limes um, and, or the, the frontiers, the frontier of the Roman Empire. Cool. Um, right. Let, let's move on to just to take a few more questions on sort of the, the experience on the wall, living on the wall. Um, uh, a very popular Google um, query is how many troops were stationed on the wall and what do we know about them? Now, I guess the answer to that would be, well, it depends which bit of the, the wall's history you're, you're asking me about, because if you said it's 300 years on, but do we, is, there, is there any sort of sensible answer you can give to that? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. It really depends on when we're talking. But one of the great things about the Roman Empire is uh, their habit to write things down. And uh, not only to write things down, but to celebrate them in stone to take credit for them in a very public fashion. Uh, so that habit of inscription, of, ins- of, of you know having things carved into stone is fantastic. So we have inscriptions that uh, allow us to effectively date the construction of Hadrian's Wall. We have inscriptions that uh, give us evidence about kind of the worship of different gods. Um, And we have tombstones of of people as well. And all those different inscriptions, those different types of inscriptions will often name individuals. The tombstones are really great evidence, actually, because they'll they'll often provide the name of a soldier or another person, because they're not all soldiers. Um, It might often name the soldier's unit, and of course, we know where it's found. So we can kind of build up this, this, uh, this series of facts to say this unit was at this location. And those Roman army units, um, in this case, the auxiliary units, are, are built from kind of the conquered peoples and territories of the Roman Empire. So they often also have an ethnic affiliation, which we can then take back to a particular part of the Roman Empire. So when we do a survey of the the different Roman auxiliary units, what we find is that there are soldiers uh, stationed along Hadrian's Wall who are from Portugal, Spain, um, Syria, um, possibly even into kind of modern Iraq. Um, 
the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, uh, France, um, Italy, um, Romania. You know, we we have men drawn from all across the Roman Empire, North Africa as well, I should say. Um, there's a unit of Morris, for example. Um, there's, you know, so we have men from across the Roman Empire who are are being garrisoned in, in Northern England. And in many ways, this region of England was far more diverse in Roman times than it is in the present day or ever has been since, because you just have this uh, this influx of, of multiculturalism, effectively. Uh, though the Roman army is the unifier, uh, beyond a doubt. But we can see these, you know, there are hints of these really fascinating personal lives. So we have, for example, a tombstone of a woman named uh, Regina. Um, she, her tombstone proclaims her of um, the Catavallani, which is a, a British tribe that's from southern England. And that's kind of the northern London, a little bit into Essex and Bedfordshire area. Um she's a slave. You know, so you, you have a slave named Queen, Regina meaning Queen. Um, she ends up being freed and marries her master, uh, who's a man named Baratis and is of Syrian origin, uh, is from Palmyra, the city of Palmyra. Um, and the tombstone depicts uh, Regina, actually not as you might think is a, a cringing former slave, but actually is a, is a matron, is a, is a head of her household. Um, you know, she's sitting in a, it, it's a more stereotypical depiction, so it's not necessarily a, a portrait, but it's, you know, it's a proud Roman woman sitting in a chair with, um, you know, a little lock chest beside the chair of, of jewelry, you know, to hold their precious valuables and the other accoutrements of, of the head of a household, of, you know, of the woman who's the head of her household. Um, the inscription below that picture gives her name, um, but also there is um, a little bit of text below that in Barati's native language as well, rather than Latin. And so, you know, these tombstones allow us these, these very tiny windows, but into the personal lives of people. That, that is absolutely fascinating. And it leads into uh, another question we've had from Johnny H on Facebook, who asks, how many black Roman soldiers do experts believe were stationed along the wall? Which you've kind of addressed a bit there, but um, that, that's a topic which has been much discussed recently, hasn't it? So can you put numbers on it? Can we can we quantify that in any way? Yeah, it's it's hard to quantify. And, and I think one of the important things to say is that um, to think in terms of, of black Roman soldiers is a very modern construct for identity. The, the Romans didn't think about race in the same way that we do. Um, and it's not to say that there wasn't racism in the Roman world. There absolutely was. But it, it wasn't calculated on skin color in the same way that it is in the modern world. Um, so we can't say with any absolute numbers uh, or, or absolute confidence that there were so many tens or hundreds of, of Roman soldiers of, of kind of Black African origin. But what we can say is that given the diversity of those units that are from across the Roman Empire, it the, the complexion of the Roman army along Hadrian's Wall wasn't of a, a much more uh, standard pale Northern European persuasion. It would have been very mixed. Um, and so you would have had um, Black Africans, but, you know, again, remembering that people of, of Mediterranean origin are often, you know, more olive skinned as well. Um, you know, but we've got people from the far north as well. So you're going to have a, you know, as I say, just a much more diverse population, but also a population which is mixing. So it's hard for us to say with any absolute confidence exactly how much they're mixing with with the local 
farming population, local farmers and villages. Um, but there's definitely going to be some mixing. One of the advantages of the Roman army is actually it can take that the multiple cultures, diverse languages and, and practices of different peoples across the Roman Empire and kind of bring them together under one thing. And, and when Roman army units travel, there's often um, what are regularly described as kind of camp followers traveling with them. It's not just a bunch of men being manly, living a life in a fort, you know, in a windswept, rainy northern England. You know, they've got family members that have traveled with them. Um, you know, it might be uh, siblings, younger siblings. Uh, it might be elderly parents. Um, they're likely to have sl- servants or slaves. Um, and even though, at least for the early Roman Empire, the soldiers were forbidden to marry legally, um, they they absolutely, we have the, the clear tombstone evidence that showed that's not the case. They had, you know, I suppose what you could be called local marriages or marriages in, in their own native culture's custom. So, you know, it's it's a whole vibrant community of people. You know, we even have the, the tombstones of children. Um, you know, it's it's not just a bunch of men living an isolated monastic life as soldiers. You know, it's it's whole vibrant communities that are drawn from across the Roman Empire and mixing, you know, and, and, and just kind of creating something new in and of itself. Just just a sort of a, a couple more on uh, on the cultural significance of the wall. So um, Evie Tang actually asked, what was the cultural significance of the wall for people in Rome? And Dee Withers on Twitter, one of our, our regular correspondents to this section, um, uh, asked, did the Romans call it Hadrian's Wall? So was it was it um, had Hadrian managed to sort of get that into into the mind of people that he was he was the guy who was responsible for this? That's a great question. Uh, and actually, if if you uh, if I point back to those. Uh, those tourist cups, as it were, those tourist bowls that I mentioned earlier, the the one that was poured to the Portable Antiquity Scheme uh, from Staffordshire, actually, one of the ins- part of the inscription is um, it says Valley Aelii, and Aelii or Alias is Hadrian's family name, and so Valley Aelii might be literally Alias's wall, um, but that's effectively for us Hadrian's wall. So there are other ways the inscription could be interpreted because it actually says Valley Alii uh, Draco, I believe. So it could be Alias Draco is the person who had this cup made. But the, the, the strong possibility is that actually within the Roman period, it was known initially as Hadrian's Wall. Um, we just can't quite be certain about that. The other possibility is one which is uh, a bit more kind of folk evidence that through the Middle Ages and into early modern times, um, you know, various manuscripts refer to the wall if either as the Roman wall or as the Picts wall. And the Picts were uh, basically a, a confederation of different groups of people that lived in, in northern Scotland who kind of became the major enemy um, through most of the 4th century AD. And so... Um, it might be that the Pix Wall was kind of the local name for Hadrian's Wall that survived in in vernacular and and you know in, in local language through the centuries. Um, we can't be certain of that either, um, but we we have two prospective names for the wall in Roman times, and you know as you indicated earlier, it just depends when we're talking about Hadrian's Wall. Okay. We've gone through a whole bunch of questions there. That's that's been really super helpful. I just, I just like to finish up just thinking about um, the twenty twenty two 
anniversary. So as you said, there's going to be um, uh, uh, events and commemorations for the 1900th 1, anniversary of uh, AD 22, when you described earlier Hadrian's um, a, a visit to, to, to Britain to see it. Um, so is that is, is that a good date for this? I mean, it sounds like it's as good a date as any to sort of have an anniversary, but is it a bit arbitrary or is it is it a, a sensible thing to be commemorating? I think it's a sensible thing to be commemorating. I mean, if if we like our nice round numbers, if we wanted two thousand years, you know, we'd we'd have to wait till, you know, twenty one, twenty two, and and I'm not sure any of us are going to be around for that. So, you know, there's there's never a bad reason to have a party, as, as far as I can tell. Um, it, it's really good, you know. I think there's there's all sorts of reasons for it. You know, we've all been hit hard by COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of us are antsy, and you know, to be honest, there. Are, you know, I can't think of any place better in Britain to visit than Hadrian's Wall. I know some people will say, you know, Cornwall or the Scottish Highlands or the Lake District, but they're all wrong, frankly. You know, Hadrian's Wall is absolutely the best place in Britain to visit. Um, And there's a lot to show. There's a lot to learn up here. There's great countryside. Um, You know, if you want to be in the countryside, then then you can be in the countryside. But actually, if you want a city break, you know, Newcastle is a fantastic, vibrant town. Um, You know, there's lots to offer. And the best way to think of the 1900th festival is as a festival. There's no one particular event that's going to define it. There's a series of events that will occur across the year. Um, I think the first event of the year is a is a conference that's going to occur in Newcastle in, in later January. And the, the festival will end with a, a Saturnalia uh, in December. And Saturnalia being a, a traditional Roman festival. Um, so, and then there'll be events at every scale. Um, you know, local village events, um, much bigger events, you know, that are much more national in coverage. Um, so there's something for everyone. It's and it's not just Romans. It's it's kind of more to celebrate the region um, as much as the wall itself. And you're involved in a community archaeology project, I think. Is that part of these this commemoration? I manage a project which is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund uh, called Wallcap, the Hadrian's Wall Community Archaeology Project. And over recent years and over this next year, that project is continuing to kind of work with volunteers and local communities to, you know, help celebrate the heritage of Hadrian's Wall. So some of the things we've done have been, you know, conservation projects, bit where the wall needs a bit of TLC, um, you know, and so we've, we're just kind of rebuilding it a little bit, making sure it's there for the next hundred years to be visited. Uh, in other cases, we're trying to understand that question of, well, where has Hadrian's Wall gone? You know, we're looking at the local castles and churches and farmhouses and and trying to identify the Roman stone um, and also help uh, people understand that, that their village may have quite literally been built from Hadrian's Wall. Um, and that has lots of events. There's online events. There's lecture series that, that talk about various things. We do a, a book club and a film club, for example. So if you don't want hardcore study, you just want to watch The Eagle of the Ninth and talk about it with someone, you know, that's we do that. So we, we try to cater for a range of audiences. But also, um, because we have a digital offering as well, it means that people that don't live locally can participate. Um, so if you are interested, all you have to do is Google Wallcap. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's um, that sounds like a great thing for anyone who's listening to this and thinks they'd like to get uh, a, a bit more into into the wall. Then, uh, um, then, then that sounds like a, a good way to do it. And uh, the Eagle of the Night, Rosemary Sutcliffe, is uh, that's a that's a belt of a book. So everyone everyone should read that. Um, so, so Rob, I, I, just just finishing up, I guess you get asked lots of questions about Hadrian's Wall all the time. Are there any um, sort of obvious big questions that uh, that we haven't uh, we haven't come up with here that uh, you feel that we ought to have um, tackled? 
I think I think we've covered everything. The the one question that I sometimes do get, uh, especially from from people who aren't particularly interested in history, is well, so what? Why does it matter? You know, why do you keep banging your drum about Hadrian's Wall? Um, and I think, to be honest, that's a fair question. Not everyone is engaged with history, um, but actually, you know, as I think recent years have shown us, understanding history is really important to kind of being able to be more critical about the world we live in, to understand that not everything has to be the way it is, um, the lessons that can be learned, so we avoid repeating mistakes. But the other thing is that we're just incredibly lucky, you know, um, to have a monument like Hadrian's Wall that that survives, that hasn't been entirely destroyed by bombs during the war, or, or in a more kind of less revolutionary fact, you know, it's not been completely stripped of its stone to build, you know, churches and castles. The fact that it remains is incredible. And it also reminds us, you know, that, you know, Britain was once part of something much bigger. It was part of the Roman Empire. Um, and importantly, once you study the history, you also learn that the Romans thought Britain was not particularly important. Um, you could describe it as, you know, the backside of empire. Um, and after the wall was initially built, you know, getting posted to Hadrian's Wall might not be very good for your career. You know, you're, you're out of sight, out of mind. And so, you know, thinking about the heritage that we have from the past and, and what that means for the present is, I think, really good for us as people uh, to reassess, you know, where we are as a nation and, and our, our importance in the world and, and how that fluctuates and varies across the centuries. That was Dr. Rob Collins, Senior Lecturer in Archaeology at Newcastle University and Project Manager to the Hadrian's Wall Community Archaeology Project. For more on the anniversary, check out hadrianswallcountry.co.uk and search for Hadrian's Wall 1900. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.